Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. So let's see if we can link all of this together. Say it again. Say it better. Let's give it a try. S2. As a battery of signifiers, as the big other, as the symbolic, as language. Nope. That shit doesn't hold. The big other is only ever a barred other. And S2 is a subset of a barred other. A knowledge, a discourse, a discipline at a university that has lots of disciplines, but not all disciplines. You see, all disciplines of all time, the big other. A specific university with many, but not all disciplines, a barred other. A specific discipline within that university, an S2. Got it? Cool. Now we've got this living individual that Lacan gives us at the start of Seminar 17. A living individual that is born into an S2 and immediately figured as a subject, immediately subjected to and subjectivized within this S2. Now, we've talked about this in the past, really from our series on Seminar 11 forward. This passage from sexuation at the level of real lack sustained by a living organism to alienation at the level of symbolic lack, castration. We talked a lot about that. Essentially, what we're talking about in each case is the no of the father at work, specifically, moving fast and loose here, a unary trait, an unary trait, a nonary trait, if you like. At the level of the unary trait, in the formation of a subject that leaves its mark on a living individual, we see a single, specific signifier being assigned to this living individual, a mark from, of, and as an other that subjects and subjectifies this body. Again, we've been over it before. I'm not going to spend too much time with it. It effectively, though, brings us back to Lacan's point about that proper name. Where did you get your name from? My name, the proper name I received, the one on my birth certificate, reads Samuel. Ooh, fancy Samuel. You look up my books, you look up my articles, it's Samuel McCormick. Hey, Samuel is an S1, a unary trait that I received when I was born. Now, ask yourself, what is the discourse, the knowledge, the family of resemblances from which Samuel came? Now, you might wonder, okay, is Samuel a family name? Perhaps your dad was named Samuel. Perhaps there are some other Samuels in the family. In other words, your name was inherited. Not so in my case. I think I asked my parents once why they chose the name Samuel, and, and they just said it sounded like some cool-ass shit. I was like, huh? 
It was zero assistance. Aha! And then I discovered the Old Testament. Mmm, Samuel. Okay, now I get it. The S2 that the S1 Samuel that I inherited could be the Old Testament. This chapters in the Old Testament dealing with the work of some dude named Samuel. Most Samuels in the Western tradition link back to Old Testament figures of this figure, whoever the hell this person was, named Samuel. And people really don't, aren't entirely sure, I don't think. Your name has a similar legacy. My point is that the unique first name that you were assigned at birth came from and links up to an S2 that is a bunch of names, perhaps within your family, perhaps you're named after your grandparent or something like this. We can diagram this work as follows. Sticking with Samuel, you might say that this is all the books in the Old Testament. Here are the ones that deal specifically with Samuel, specific subsets of the Old Testament dealing with this prophetic figure known as Samuel. Here is the name Samuel, one signifier of many in those books, being passed down as a unary trait to me. And if your name's Samuel, welcome to the club. And that is affecting a subjectivity. That is me being subjugated and subjectified within a discourse that is, I don't know, Semitic, that is old, linked up to legacies of prophecy and the like. I don't buy any of that shit, but nevertheless, it's there. Samuel signifies, because as an S1, as a unary trait, as a single characteristic from this discourse, it remains connected to that discourse. That's what this arrow indicates. From the, a barred other, to a subset of that barred other, to a specific signifier within that subset, to a living individual that is now subjected to that signifier, subjectified within, by extension, the discourses from which it emerged. Now, at each of these levels, you see repetition at work. All of the books in the Old Testament, Samuel is there as a signifier. In the books dealing with Samuel, Samuel is there as a signifier. On my birth certificate, in the signifier that I received from the big others, Bard and otherwise in my life, when I was born, you see Samuel occurring yet again. At each stage, you see an iterative vomiting of the signifier Samuel. That's the point here. Now, what happens when this signifier is delivered, is assigned to the living individual, resulting in a split subject? Well, if you've seen our series on 16, you know that this is one way of talking about the formation of the superego at the level of subjugation, at the level of prohibition. A superego would result from this process. That's not all, though. 
another ego formation, the ego ideal, would result from this process. Not so much one of subjugation, but one of subjectivization. Not so much one of prohibition, but one of positionality. The ego ideal that is transmitted through the signifier Samuel doesn't just prohibit me from continuing to live as a living organism uninscribed by the very system into which I was born. It now gives me a place within that system, a positionality. And we could go on and talk about ideal egos too. My point is that at the level of the split subject, you see ego formation starting to pop when the S1 is a unary trait that is assigned to the living individual. This is the mark that Lacan is referring to when he says the split subject is a mark left on and in the living individual. The markings that are left in the living individual at the level of subjectivity, we call them superegos, we call them ego ideals, we call them ideal egos. We can keep going, but we won't. This S2 to S1 sequence, you just heard me say, is repetitive. If you belong in a family where first names are passed down, you know this all too well. In my case, ain't nobody named Samuel in my family. Just as easily, though, I can trace the S1 Samuel back to the Old Testament, as we just did. There's my S2. S2 here is a discourse, a discipline, a network of signifying relations, of family resemblances, a knowledge. This is what Lacan means when he talks about a knowledge. It's a discourse, a discourse formation, a discipline, if you will. Now, this newly formed subject, is a split subject. If you want to stick with the subversion of the subject essay, you could say this is a split subject torn between enunciating aspects of self and grammatical aspects of self. The part of me that lives as a bio-animalistic living individual and the part of me that now finds representation in the field of language, a sociolinguistified self. Here you see the enunciating subject and the grammatical subject. Go back to our series on the subversion of the subject essay if you're curious about this. But what you see here is a really basic way of understanding the split subject. It's the living individual, bio-animalistic self, that has now linked up, been intruded upon at the level of S1 qua unary trait by the field of language and now has a version of self that exists at the level of the signifier, here, Samuel. More often than not, people accept their birth names. More often than not, they accept it. And when someone asks, what's your name? It's one of the first little conversations kids have. They get to say what their name is. More often than not, the newly formed subject part bioanimalistic and now part sociolinguistic, accepts the S1 that was given to them, their unary trait, and they start using it. They show others that they accept the S1. And when they show this acceptance by identifying themselves as, in this case, Samuel, perhaps, this S1 gets fed back into The system of signifiers, the discipline, the discourse, the knowledge, S2, from which it came. 
what you see emerging from this is a kind of feedback loop, which we can draw kind of like this. Here is this S2, books in the Old Testament perhaps, giving the signifier Samuel to a specific living individual and marking them as a split subject. Here now, with the red arrow, you see the split subject embracing that designation and saying, hi, my name is Samuel, and feeding right back into the very tradition from which their subjectivity emerged as an effect. And so what you see is this kind of feedback loop that gets going when the living individual accepts their split subjectivity and their positionality within a system of discourse, here designated by S2. Now, you have lots of signifiers attached to you. I'm just focusing on your proper name in the spirit of what we've been talking about today. But remember what I also said about that living individual that Lacan introduces us to on page 13 of Seminar 17. There's always something more to this living individual. Something more than this particular inherited assigned S1. Something more than what Samuel can fully represent. And again, I've come up with some other signifiers to account for that. If you know me, you don't call me Samuel. You sure as fuck don't call me doctor. You sure as fuck don't call me professor. You call me Sam. Sam is a nickname. You might also call me shitbird fuckstick. That's okay too. I've heard that one. In each case though, the living individual that receives the assigned signifier, Samuel, whatever your proper name is, whatever you see when you look at your birth certificate, there are probably other names that you are known by. Honey, baby, babe. I don't know what your partner calls you. Let's hope it's not shitbird fuckstick. But nevertheless, you have all these other signifiers, some of which you came up on your own, others were given to you by your friends, growing up, your nicknames, this kind of shit. How about your handles, what you go by on your socials? That's not always your first name. You should see my daughter's names on Roblox. She changes that shit all the time. I think she, I was playing Roblox with her recently, and her name was like Amanda Pettigrew. She's eight years old. It's like, where the fuck are you come with Amanda Pettigrew? She's like, I don't know. I couldn't think of a name. She gave herself nicknames. And she's like, and let's, and she's like, daddy, she's like, that's my, uh, that's my, uh, my game name or something like this. She's like, that's not my username. My username is something else. And I won't tell you all because y'all are on Roblox. I want you tracking her down. But she got a username that is hers and that is also something that she made up. Her birth name is Iris. None of their, of her names on Roblox show that assigned signifier at play. Now, when we talk and we're on the phone and we're playing Roblox and shit, she responds to Iris. I don't call her Amanda Pettigrew. You feel me? My point is that there's always room at the level of the living individual to come up with signifiers, S1s of their own. And when this happens, that S1 in question starts to shift. You've seen our series on 16, you know where I'm going with this. It shifts from being a unary trait that subjects and subjectifies the individual organism 
to being a master signifier. When you pick a nickname, when you say, motherfucker, don't call me Samuel, my new name is Gerard, or whatever the fuck you pick, you are effectively relayering atop the S1 of your unary trait a new use of that S1. Gerard is not my unary trait. It is a master signifier. I'm not going to go too much into this because we worked through it pretty thoroughly and I'd say radically in our last series. But let's be clear about it. Here, S1 designates not the unary trait, but a master signifier. And one that at least initially stands out is exterior 2. This S2 that gave me my assigned birth name. It is an excessive signifier subtracted from the S2. See what I'm doing with this? Relative to that S2 that gave me Samuel, Sam or Shipbird Fuckstick or Gerard, whatever the case may be, is an excised signifier, a signifier that doesn't exist there. It wouldn't even be fair to say that it's an excised signifier. If it exists there, it exists just as Lacan figures it in the subversion of the subject essay, as a negative one in parens. As a master signifier, when I show up at the family function, and they're like, hello, Samuel, and I'm like, that's Gerard, bitch. If I say that at the family function, what I've effectively done is introduced a new S1, an S1 that is exterior to and intervenes within the S2 that is the family of names and figures and subjects into which I was born. This is what Lacan means in the opening pages of Seminar 17 when he talks about S1 being exterior to a battery of signifiers and intervening in that battery of signifiers. It's as a master signifier radically redefined as we have in our last series, intervening in an S2, that this new S1, this nickname, does its work. Here, instead of a repetitive logic that would extend, as we've seen, from the Old Testament to the books on Samuel to my birth certificate to me, a, rep a repetition of the signifier Samuel, when I show up and say, call me Gerard, bitch, what I'm doing instead is introducing difference. Now what you see is an absolute difference between the S2 into which I was born and integrated via unary trait and the S1 that I am now issuing as Gerard as absolutely different and distinct from the Samuel that I received from an S2. This new trajectory from S1 to S2 via master signifier, it marks the emergence of the subject anew. And what I want to emphasize here is that it's an emergence of subjectivity that brings with it a series of losses. Also with an eye towards what Lacan is doing around loss in the opening pages of Seminar 17. S1 as Gerard, as master signifier, is a signifier of what lacks in the big other, in the barred other, in its excise subset here known as S2. 
it's a signifier of lack within that field of family resemblances because this S1 is fundamentally lacking from that family of names. Show me Gerard in the Old Testament. Show me Gerard in the books in the Old Testament that deal with Samuel. You see where I'm going with this? S1 as a master signifier is a lack that the S2 sustains because this S1 is absent from it. Slang works this way if you think about the example of languages that we were playing with. Relative to Webster's Dictionary, which is a dominant dictionary in English, hella riz doesn't exist. You can't look up hella in the dictionary, in Webster's, and find a definition. You might find hell, but you ain't going to find hella. I live in San Francisco. I live in the Bay Area. Hella is a word that people use all the time. It means many. It means a lot of. If you say somebody got hella riz, you're saying they have a lot of something. Hella, though, is not a word that you're going to find in the dictionary. It's not in the OED. And what is riz? I had to have my students explain this to me this semester. I said, who got hella riz? Said, Tone got hella riz. Okay, what's riz mean? Riz, as you may know, does not exist in the dictionary. It is short for a word that does, however. Charisma. Riz is short for charisma. Charisma is a word that you can look up in the dictionary. It is integrated, fully situated within the S2 known as Webster's Dictionary. Riz is not. Riz stands apart from the very system of signifiers that it simultaneously tries to intrude upon as a master signifier. Slang works the same way as the nickname, is what I'm trying to tell you here. What it does is it makes the barred other emerge. Lacan talks about this a little bit on page 15 in Seminar 17. What I think he's getting at here is that when the S1 shows up as exterior to and intervening in an S2, as a battery of signifiers, as a collection of names, as a language, as a discipline, as a discourse, what it does is it shows that the big other is always only a barred other and that this S2 is always only an excised subset of that barred other. What it shows, in other words, is the very incompletion of the barred other that allows us to say it does not exist except as a barred other. The same logic holds for every S2. Every dictionary seeks for a complete account of the words operational in a living language. But when a slang word pops up and you notice it's not in the dictionary, what that proves is that the dictionary is inadequate, that its task is incomplete, that it has not encompassed all the words in a given dictionary. When I show up and say, call me Gerard, bitch, I'm basically telling the family, I got a new signifier for y'all. I got a signifier that hasn't showed up yet. That's a fuck you to the Old Testament when I show up and say, call me Gerard, bitch. That's one way to think about it. The emergent difference between Samuel and Sam and Sam and Gerard 
if you want to just keep playing this out. It also marks another space of lack, of loss. A certain loss at the level of the subject, at the level of a differential relation between my unary trait and my master signifier, at the very least. Objet A in Lacan's late 1960s thought becomes a term for designating these losses at the level of a barred other and at the level of a barred subject. Relative to the barred other, to a barred other, a big barred other, we can just go on renaming this thing. Little a designates some signifier, some way of signifying this lack in the other. Relative to the subject, little a could be the differential relation between Samuel and Sam. The way that the subject changes as it gets restated from unary trait to master signifier. Again, we're moving fast. I apologize. But you can always go back and review our previous materials on this. We're just trying to get ramped up to seminar 17. Don't forget it. Together, this big barred other and this little split subject, in this circuit of repetition and difference with a nice big dose of loss, they form a certain structural logic, what Lacan calls, on page 19 of Seminar 17, the knowledge process. What we've been working up towards in each of these little statements is a broader diagram that you saw in early form developed in our last series, our second diagram, that Lacan refers to in Seminar 17 as the knowledge process. This is how knowledges operate. The same way languages operate. Let's see if we can come up with a diagram for this. It's a little more complicated, but I think we can walk our way through it. If you've seen our second diagram in Seminar 16, this will look very familiar to you. It's a little different, but it's still quite familiar. If you haven't, you can go back and check it out. But let me see if I can talk you through this business here. Here in the middle, in this square, what you see is the basic topology that we've been playing with. Here is the S2 that delivers a unary trait that subjectifies the living being. Here is call it uh, books on Samuel. Here is the designator Samuel as unary trait that results in a split subject leaving its mark on the living being that I was when I was born before my birth certificate read Samuel. You see? What happens then is as I grow up, I can come up with a different name for myself. Let's say I want to be called Gerard. I just love it. We just stick with Gerard. It's fucking great. Let's say I want to be called Gerard. What I'm doing is I'm saying, listen up. System that previously named me Samuel, you now have a new signifier to contend with. It's me as Gerard. You feel me? Can you accept it? Will you call me Gerard from now on at all the family functions, etc., etc.? What this signifier, this S1, shows is that there is a signifier that is absent from the system that gave me my name. This here is an S1 as master signifier. This here is an S1 as unary trait. 
Here the logic is one of repetition. Here the arrow is one of difference. It says, I, as Gerard, am now surprising y'all, showing up with a new signifier at the family function. You see? Now, my family's cool. If I showed up and said, call me Gerard, you know what they're going to call me? First of all, they're going to crack the fuck up, and then they're going to be like, okay, Gerard, and they will call me Gerard for the rest of my life, and I may be a little embarrassed by that at some point. Nevertheless, they will honor my initial request, even and especially if I ask them to stop someday and instead call me shitbird fuckstick, my preferred signifier. They're so accepting, in fact. Hear me now. that one of my cousins would have a son and name him after me. Not Samuel. No, they would name him Gerard. Gerard could be accepted by the S2 from which my name and subjectivity emerged to such an extent that it could become a new signifier within that S2 that could then be passed down to other subjects. You see? Here, at the level of this red box, you see the first S2 being expanded to include the signifier Gerard that can then be issued as a unary trait, as an S1, to some other sap born into this wild and woolly family. You see how this works, right? Repetition, difference, repetition, and it would just go on and on and on, and difference and repetition, and difference and repetition. Now note, this all assumes, too, that the signifier Gerard is accepted by the family of signifiers from which I received the name Samuel, be it the Old Testament or a family name. There are many cases where a subject shows up at the family function and says, I'm not a he. I'm a she. I'm not a she. I'm a they. My name is no longer Samuel. My name is Samantha. And the family does not accept this master signifier, this re-dis-signification of the subject previously known as Samuel. In this case, the S2 would not be expanded to include Samantha, but Samantha would exist and remain as a radical signifier, different from, with absolute differential relation to, the family of signifiers known as S2 in this case. So it's not always as easy to think about the S2 being progressively expanded from here to here to here, and thus grown to include the subject's nicknames, a language grown to include slang. That's not often what happens. What often happens is the keepers of that language, which is precisely why we talk about knowledge and power together. The bearers of that knowledge refuse to accept the radical re-dissignifications of the subjects who have been subjected to and subjectivized within that knowledge. OED shows no sign of including RIS among its terms. 
Webster's Dictionary. Not even nearly as fancy as the OED. Ain't got room for Riz. Not yet. Ain't got room for Hella. Not yet. What we oftentimes see is a pull between the knowledge power structures at the level of an S2 that have a certain stagnation impulse in them and the pull of radical signifiers, S1s, that are exterior to and oftentimes trying to intrude upon this signifier, battery known as S2. So it's not just as easy as thinking that the S2 is always swollen to encompass this other one. With those two options in place, does the S2 accept the master signifier and swell to include it among its ranks, or does it reject the master signifier in order to remain in its current state? The wager that Lacan makes is that there is a structural, necessary, essential push within every functioning other, big other here, the big other, a big barred other, S2 as knowledge, as discourse, they are all goaded, drawn to totalization. In other words, the imperative, logically, operationally, on these structures, and they are structures, is not towards rejection of master signifiers, but instead towards acceptance. This is the big other. The big other is an ever-encompassing operational logic where difference and repetition work dialectically to result in an ever-expanding sequence. You see it at the level of S2. You see it at the level of every big barred other. They all want to be the big other if you allow wanting to even be part of the calculus here. As we established in our last series on Seminar 16, with a big shout out to the folks in that series that helped clarify this, we're not talking about desire here. We're talking about operational logics. We're talking about a momentum. We're talking about a structural operation happening at the level of every big O other. Barred and pretending, always edging towards the big O other, but never getting there. The paradox that Zeno knew is also the one that the big other sustains. This ever-expanding series of S2s, what I'm trying to say is that this is the big other as a virtual operational logic of progressive encompassment. You've heard me say all this before in our series on 14 and 16. It's still present here in 17, which is why I'm spending some time with it. But here's the deal. What draws this process out is the fact that something is always dropping out from each iterative expansion. The big other is always coming up short, which is why it doesn't exist. It's always a barred other because there's always some part of the living individual that it tries to inscribe that slips out, that falls by the wayside that is not yet counted, that can subsequently show up and say, there's a part of me that is known as Samantha. And it ain't included in the Samuel designation that you've given. That part of my living individuality, the big other doesn't exist because it has not yet accounted for that. 
And if you've heard me talk about my cat Lucifer and all the signifiers we have for her in our last series, you know where I'm going with this. Lucifer captures some part of what this cat is all about. But there's a part of her living experience that doesn't line up with the signifier Lucifer. For instance, her appetite. This cat loves food. And we have another name for her around this part of her living identity that likes food. But there is more to her than what Lucifer and the food-loving part of her can be represented at the level of the signifier. We can just go on naming her. Something will always slip out from that process because no one signifier is adequate to represent fully, wholly, completely, and adequately the living individual where it leaves its mark. Notice, it's a mark left in the living individual, not a circumscription, not an encompassment of the living individual. It's a slash or a cut. That's how the unary trait operates. It doesn't encompass. It pries into, bores out, and opens up. Here's what we can derive from this. At the limit of every repetitive expansion of S2 that you see in this diagram, and you can just imagine, this just keeps going. Bigger, 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 and so on. At the limit of every repetitive expansion, there is a new beyond for, quote, knowledge to work out. For the barred other, any given barred other, to work out. It's a beyond which is always us. As living subjects, always living in excess of the signifiers that purport to represent us. It's us as living individuals, the living part of the living subject bit, that is constantly dropping out from the totalizing efforts of any given S2 connected to any given barred other. This beyond, Lacan tells us at the start of Seminar 17, is jouissance. We'll have to see where he goes with this. We'll have to see what he makes of this jouissance at the beyond, at the limit of knowledge, when it encounters the elements that it has not yet encompassed. Whose jouissance are we talking about here? We are talking about that of the barred other. This knowledge process that is the barred other's jouissance. It's only means of approaching the structure, structural lack around which it takes shape. This is part of what we learned in seminar 16, is that the barred subject and the barred other both take shape around a constitutive void, a constitutive hole or furrow or hollow. And it's a hollow that signals the prohibition of jouissance. Not that jouissance was there and has then been subtracted, but it's around the prohibition against ever having jouissance that the barred other and the split subject take shape. They're split because jouissance is always in subtracted relation to them, removed from them. Not in the sense that it was there and then taken out again, but ever distant, as prohibited. The jouissance in question here, in other words, at the limit 
of this knowledge process where it constantly needs to expand further is the jouissance of the barred other. Meanwhile, in the field of the barred subject, which each of us is, we find our own pathways to jouissance. And if you've seen our series on the drive, you know. If you've seen our series on Seminar 16, you know even more. That some pathways to jouissance available to the split subject are more fulfilling than others. Even and especially when these pathways don't promise to fill us up fully. Hear me now. How to approach the mythical, unmarked, unrepresented status of the living individual that Lacan gives us as the site or the locus for the split subject at the start of Seminar 17. All these S1s, all these S2s, they subjectify this living individual. Is there a way to restore this living individual? Lacan asks in Seminar 11. Where do we access jouissance after integration into these symbolic fields, these various S2s, after being subjectivized? I'd like to suggest that there are four options. Four options just to get us started here. Don't forget, this is the opening riff on Seminar 17. First and foremost, you know it all too well, jouissance as transgression. You saw it in Seminar 7. We get off on breaking the rules. This, however, is very unfulfilling because it shows that enjoyment is completely pegged to desire and the law. No law, nothing to break, and nothing to enjoy. In other words, this type of jouissance as transgression depends upon the existence and maintenance of a social order with all of its laws and inhibitions so that you can then break those laws and experience enjoyment. Unfulfilling. Jouissance via masochism is a second option here. Here you would see jouissance at the level of repetition compulsion, if you like your Freud. Jouissance at the level of repeating the experience of loss, of pain, of suffering. Big shout out to the drive cartel that I've been hanging out with. Y'all know who you are. Um, really got me thinking about this jouissance via masochism. Yeah, via repetition compulsion. The way that in the Fort Da game we see Lil Ernst replaying the trauma of his mother's departure. Third, the split subject gets a little taste of jouissance via sublimation. This was a big part of what we did toward the end of our series on Seminar 16 toward the production of surplus jouissance, another term that is popping here at the start of Seminar 17, which we'll come to. Surplus jouissance via sublimation, where the losses we sustained early in life find new objects. Weaning, loss of the breast, results in thumb sucking, straws, nail biting, smoking cigarettes, these new metonymic stand-ins for the breast that will no longer return. These are sublimations. We also see this, as I'm sure you know, because you've seen the series on 16, 
at the level of commodity consumption. I won't go into it just to say that this type of drive satisfaction where the drive is sublimated and made to find appropriate socially acceptable outlets in late capitalism, namely at the level of commodity consumption. I can't have mother's breast, so I'm going to buy, I don't know, some ice for my grill, a new holder for my cigarettes so they look extra long. I don't fucking know, whatever it is. We talked about this stuff. Gives us an opportunity to rethink jouissance, not via sublimation, not as surplus jouissance, not at the level of a little taste of jouissance, but instead jouissance via desublimation, jouissance via the drive. Not where you're doing something with your drive, but where your drive allows you to sit there with the very lack that conditions it, the very lack that we are. This is not surplus enjoyment that we're talking about, my friends. This is what I call real enjoyment at the level of one's own body. This is also not masochistic enjoyment, but autoerotic enjoyment at the level of one's own body. Not a masochistic repetition of loss. Think back to that Fort Dodd game. But an autoerotic enjoyment of my own body at the level of the openings I find, the erogenous zones that are conditioned by the loss that we sustain. Every loss that we sustain opens us up to this prospect of enjoyment, this fourth potential capacity for enjoyment. So there they are. You could transgress. You could self-abuse. You can sublimate or you can desublimate. I cue this up now because if we've got an understanding of how the barred other via S2 enjoys at the level of progressive encompassment and always dealing with some limit, some beyond any given instantiation of that operation, it's also important that we want to consider how at this point we can talk about the barred subject's access to enjoyment. These are four for us to consider, one of which, surplus enjoyment, remains on Lacan's horizon here at the start of Seminar 17. Thanks for listening to Lectures on Lacan. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. 